Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the Los Angeles-based writers Jeff Mayno and Nicola Twilley, who for the past decade have been working on a book about the history and future of quarantine. Jeff has written for the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Wired, and is also the author of the 2016 book, A Burglar's Guide to the City. Nicola is co-host of the podcast Gastropod and a contributor to The New Yorker. I really can't think of anyone better to speak to about quarantines right now, throughout history, or going forward than them. Let's get them on the line. Hi, Jeff and Nicola. It's so great to have you both with us today. Welcome to At A Distance. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yep, thank you. And go ahead and uh, call me Nikki. I prefer the short form. Can you define, I guess, to start quarantine for us in perhaps the simplest of terms that you can? Quarantine at heart is really about isolating someone who is suspected of carrying a contagion of some kind. Mm. And so it's a preemptive way of kind of buffering someone so that they don't infect the rest of a population. And I, I would say the thing about it is it is fundamentally about uncertainty. So if you know that you're sick or infectious and you distance yourself from other people so as not to transmit that infection, then you are in isolation. Whereas quarantine is by definition a liminal state where you're not yet proven to be healthy or sick. Mm. I mentioned this, of course, because you've both been working on a book that you're you're co-authoring. Andrew and I will get there, but uh, before we do, I wanted to ask about the history of quarantine, which is you know goes back to Dubrovnik in Venice. Could you run us through a little bit of the history of quarantine, how we got to now? Sure. Yeah. So. I think the practice, at least, of quarantine was formalized first in the Mediterranean, specifically in the Adriatic, during the Black Death as a means to protect human health while continuing to maintain the the trade, the extremely lucrative trade on which the region's wealth was based. And so you still see that tension today between trade and preventing the spread of contagion. And, and that was something that was very real in the Black Death, too. The first quarantine station, Lazaretto it was called, was built in Dubrovnik. And the initial period of quarantine was just 30 days. That was eventually mm. uh, extended to 40 days, which is where you get quarantine, quaranti, giorni. So that was sort of the first formal structure for that. The practice is definitely most closely associated with Venice. That's where it was really built out and scaled out. Venice, of course, is the perfect laboratory for, for quarantine, being a sort of series of islands with a natural spatial buffer. It served as this kind of laboratory for all sorts of ideas like that. The, the first ghetto is obviously Venetian too. So that's where it sort of became a standardized and formalized kind of procedure. Mm. I'd say just to add to that, you know, one of the reasons why quarantine happened where it did and when it did is because it's an interface point where, you know, this economy between Europe and the Western states with the Middle East and with other sort of trade routes that were coming through there. And so at that interface point was precisely where there was an encounter that might lead to infection that generated uh, suspicion and the uncertainty of what you were actually coming into contact with. And so quarantine is the spatial and temporal response to that. 
That's one of the things that's so interesting about this is that whenever you can find a site of encounter or a place where two things come together and mix, quarantine is the way in which that is managed or administered. But what's also interesting, and just to piggyback on something else that Nikki said, is that quarantine as an actual administrative spatial practice goes back to the Black Death. But even then, what's interesting is that it was kind of conceptually backdated. And by giving it the whole notion of the 40 days of quarantine, you know, that was a religious reference. It goes back to the biblical times, the idea of Christ's isolation in the desert. And it sort of ties itself back into a much deeper past about what it means to isolate, what it means to be uncertain, what it means to sort of withdraw oneself from the world out of protection of oneself and and others. And so quarantine is really interesting that way. It has a historical origin, but also kind of a conceptual origin, and it gets reinvented all the time these sites of encounter. So you guys have been working on this for a number of years, like a decade, and then this happens, right? So it's been this kind of rock in your shoe. You've been learning, learning, learning. Then this happens. And then you living in Los Angeles go under lockdown. How has the experience of being under lockdown for what seems like probably 40 days now when we're talking, right? How has that shifted your thinking and has it brought it from the abstract to the real? Well, it's funny. While we were doing our research, we sought out people to speak to who had experienced quarantine. Until recently, that was actually not everybody. Um, Now it's everybody. But people would always say, yeah, the thing about quarantine is it's really boring. Um, And we would always be like, oh, no. (laughs) What you don't realize is really interesting. Turns out quarantine is really fascinating as a lens through which to think about things and understand the world around us and think about how we conceptualize freedom and and rights and and movement and all sorts of things. It's just incredibly boring to experience. They were all right. And that is a a funny point, actually, that, you know, we had actually a short list of people who we knew had experienced quarantine. And we went through, you know, a great deal of effort to track them down and set up formal (laughs) interviews with them in order to, you know, get a sense of what they did, how they saw their family, like what movies they watched on Netflix and that kind of thing. But now, obviously, you know, we could just interview each other about what the experience of quarantine is really like. But, you know, our families and friends and entire nation states have have gone through it. So that has been funny. I mean, and along those lines, too, just anecdotally, at least for the time being, the book is still actually called this. But we sold the book under the title The Coming Quarantine. And the idea was that, you know, there was this moment of isolation and of medical emergency was looming in the future. And we were convinced it was going to happen and it was going to have this spatial aspect to it. And now saying the coming quarantine for a book, we're living through it. It's already come, so to speak. And, you know, it's here. So the very title of the book has been made obsolete by by the historical events. <laughs> well, you know, that might not be the last one. So I think the title still stands. <laughs> yeah. The next quarantine. Right. Yeah, the quarantine still yet to come. <laughs> it is really true. I mean, when we were, it seems so ridiculous to say this now, but at one point we even, we visited the World Health Organization to talk in Geneva to talk to them about quarantine. And they were like, well, you must be interested in in this from a historical point of view, because it's not something we would ever really need to use anymore. It's this blunt instrument we have, you know, in this day and age, we can be much more precise with tests and so on. And we would never have a large scale quarantine again. And it's like, well, <laughs> welcome to right now. So it is it is true that people did, even at the CDC, there was sort of a split between people who thought the quarantine was still a relevant power and an important one, something we needed to update, and people who were like, yeah, that mm. stuff died with the 1918 flu and, and we don't need to worry about it anymore. 
is what you're talking about and this conversation with a with a woman from the World Health Organization is this a clue as to why it was so hard for us to mobilize quickly and why when we really look back just in the short history you know 5 days made a big difference well, yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a connection. I think that maybe they're both caused by the same thing as opposed to leading to each other. But I think that there's just a general overconfidence in medical R&D, the idea that, you know, of course, we're going to find a vaccine. Uh, you know, there's no way that a mystery disease is really going to come out and affect the world all at once. And I think that that sort of swagger that people had led them to believe that quarantine wasn't something that would ever be necessary. And then also, I think that the notion of quarantine, I often point out that, you know, there was a horror movie that came out about 10 years ago, and it was just called quarantine, as if the very word itself would just instill fear and, and terror. <laughs> the idea that quarantine is this thing that how are we going to get hundreds of millions of people to agree to stay at home or go to a hospital? You know, it just seems so outlandish and such a horrific political scenario that I think people, yeah, kind of gave up on it and just assumed it was a, a figment of the past. I also think people thought it wasn't going to be possible. All the experts we spoke to, even people who believed it was an important tool for if we did find ourselves sort of completely helpless, people who were a little perhaps more humble about our capacities in the face of emerging diseases, they still felt like Americans, at least, would never agree to such a limitation on their freedoms and ability to move around. And so that piece has actually been kind of fascinating mm. for us, like rather than the problem being people not willing to give up their individual rights for the public good, on the whole, the vast majority have been completely willing to do that. It's actually that the medical establishment that was so confident they weren't even going to need people to do that, you know, there's a lot of reasons why they are so underprepared, but they have completely failed with their high tech, we don't need quarantine anymore approach. I'm curious how you how you arrived at the subject of quarantine. You know, nobody was really thinking about this a decade plus ago. How did you arrive at this? Well, yeah, I guess a couple ways. Biographically, the two of us were down in Sydney, Australia for a short-term teaching gig. While we were there, we noticed that out on one of these remote peninsulas across the bay outside of Sydney, there was this old uh, quarantine station that had been turned into a luxury hotel. And it seemed really interesting that, first of all, at the time it was, you know, why would this facility have been important when it was and how did it lapse and go from medical infrastructure to luxury hotel? So what was quarantine? You know, it was kind of what we were thinking at the time. But then also the attendant realization that, you know, the, the world has quarantine stations kind of all over the place that are out in the fringes, often in actually ironically very beautiful landscapes precisely because they're isolated. So they're off in the forest or they're out on a remote island. By today's standards, they're actually quite beautiful. And it's one of the reasons why they get turned into luxury hotels. And then a lot of the other quarantine stations have been turned into theatrical venues or art centers and all kinds of things, or if not just left to, to be abandoned. So there was that kind of question, like, you know, what was the history of this quarantine station outside Sydney and how did it come about that kind of led us into this historical research? But then I'd also say, just speaking for myself, you know, as an architecture and design writer, the thing that seemed really, really interesting to me about quarantine from the very beginning was just this conceptual idea that when we think of medicine, to go back to all the things we've been talking about so far, we think about vaccines and we think about microbes and we think about medication and prescriptions and so on. But it seemed really interesting that architecture was a way of stopping epidemic disease, that you could actually build a building in so clever a way that you could stop contagion between human beings. And so what was it about space itself or the space time of architecture that could actually 
give it a medical role on a global level. And there was just something about that for me that was really, really interesting. The idea that we can control contagion through where we put doors and windows, you know, that if we just give everybody six feet more of space inside of a room, like whether it's a dormitory or whether it's a supermarket, we can freeze a disease in its tracks. There was just something so incredibly strange and interesting about that for me that I really wanted to get into that kind of the superpowers of architecture and how it shaped quarantine. And then we took that idea and organized a multidisciplinary design studio in New York City. And we recruited, I can't even remember, 10, 11, 12 people, a set designer, a game designer, a graphic designer, a couple of artists, some architects, fiction writer, like just a whole group of people from very different disciplines and ran a sort of semester-long evening school on quarantine. And then everyone produced a project of their own that sort of took an aspect of quarantine that they found fascinating. We put on an exhibition at Storefront for Art and Architecture, and I think that's when we really realized, you know what, there's so much here. There's so many interesting ways to think about this. There's so much we haven't been able to express just through this exhibition. That's when it really turned into a book. Mm. We, we think of, and you were mentioning this, that of quarantine as strictly as sort of a medical practice. But what are some of the other dimensions in which quarantines exist? Where do we find quarantines outside of the medical? This is definitely something we explore in the book. It's sort of a quarantine across time, but also across scales. So agricultural quarantine is a very big part of the book. I think until this happened, it actually seemed that agricultural quarantine was going to sort of hit first in a major way with the spread of diseases that attack major crops like wheat, for example. So there's that sort of quarantine and tons of fascinating examples of the infrastructure of that happening underneath our eyes all the time. You know, at the California border right now, because it's bee, it's pollination season in the almond Mm. uh, groves, you know, the bees are going through quarantine right now. Another scale at which quarantine happens that we don't really often think about is the planetary scale. So planetary protection and planetary quarantine procedures, both so that we don't contaminate outer space with our life. You know, no one wants to go to uh, to Mars and find life only to realize we brought it with us to the reverse. So making sure we don't bring germs from space back to Earth. And so that's a that's a whole, you know, there's a planetary protection officer at NASA and the European Space Agency. There's planetary quarantine procedures. I visited the new um, Mars rover at JPL just now, and there's a mm. whole sort of clean room quarantine procedure for that. The sample return design process is a fascinating aspect. Astronauts have to go into quarantine before they go to space and on the way back, so... That's happening all the time. And, and again, not really related to the kind of, you know, people don't tend to sort of make associations across the fields. There are experts in each field, but not talking to each other. So that's something we do in the book. Mm. Yeah. And I, I might add that even though it is human quarantine, um, you know, also there are so many political and constitutional questions tied up in quarantine as well that it's really not, not medical as such, but 
the question of where does the federal power to quarantine come from? You know, what does an authority draw on when when they come to your door and say that you must stay inside this house or you have to go check into a facility somewhere else? You know, where does that power come from? And so tracing that has actually been really interesting too, like trying to figure out the constitutional history of quarantine, the very nature of, you know, whether or not you are officially under quarantine or not. It's actually interesting to look at the fact that we have been saying, you know, that everybody is effectively in quarantine right now. But the actual federal definition of quarantine and the actual orders that go into saying you must stay at home or you must report to this facility are actually quite different. And very few of us are in quarantine right now. It's kind of a metaphoric lockdown for us. But in any case, looking at that has actually been been really interesting, too. There's so many fundamental governmental powers built into quarantine and the power to isolate and the power to command you to stay at home. That goes into the book as well. And speaking of the metaphors, that is another thing that we look at, the sort of metaphorical quarantine. Um, it's It gets used a lot politically. You know, JFK will sort of quarantine Cuba, things like that. And so what's being implied there? And what's interesting about it is it's, again, it's sort of to go to what Jeff was saying. It allows you to have this sort of liminal state. We're not formally cutting you off, which would be a, like a geopolitical action with real consequences. It allows you to sort of go into a gray zone that implements a buffer, but without having to define it as, you know, an act of war, an act right. of formally cutting ties, et cetera. Well, I wanted to bring this up because this idea of sort of separation, isolation, and, and using that as a political tool. When you used the word swagger earlier, I was just thinking about like this notion of a swaggering president in the White House building a wall. <laughs> so I wanted to bring up the idea of like, how do you view the wall things like Guantanamo Bay or even America's prison system in the context of, of how one might define quarantine. Well, yeah, so Guantanamo Bay actually figures in the book mostly because it literally did function as a quarantine station at one point, or a site of quarantine, I should say, where Haitian refugees that were coming to the United States in the early 1990s were suspected of being HIV positive and so were held on Guantanamo Bay in a state of quarantine and not allowed to enter the United States. And I mean, obviously, there's so many reasons for that. You know, Guantanamo Bay is not really, in, even though it's on the island of Cuba, it's not in Cuba, and it's also not in the United States. It's this really strange sort of exclave. But then also, uh, there's a lot of really interesting historical resonances there, because the attorney general at the time who signed off on quarantining these Haitian refugees was William Barr, who's once again our attorney general, mm. uh, which is a slightly ominous precedent for for the, the, the period we're going through. But even some of the... Um, legal theorists who later weighed in during the war on terror about what makes an enemy combatant, you know, so someone who is not tied to a nation state and can be held outside of the Geneva Convention without being accused of any particular thing, but can be held in a state of detention indefinitely. Some of those same legal theorists later then weighed in on on the Bush administration trying to redefine what it means to be quarantined. And so, you know, there's even some really kind of strange resonances between enemy combatants mm. and individuals in a state of quarantine. And that ties back mm. to that site of, of Guantanamo Bay. I mean, I think the thing is with quarantine fundamentally, because it is a state of uncertainty, then the door is open to suspicion. And once the door is open to suspicion, the door is also open to bias. And that has been throughout the history of quarantine. You know, who is suspected of potentially being a contagious threat has always been subject to the biases and stereotypes of the people who are enforcing that. You see that again and again. It's used as a method of sort of limiting the movement of less desirable immigrants. There's a, a really disturbing episode in America's history called The American Plan, where quarantine was used to um, supposedly 
stop the free movement of women who were suspected of carrying venereal disease, but actually was really just a method of reducing the freedoms of these working class, economically independent women mm. that the you know who were perceived as being a threat. It's been used as a tool. Yeah, you know, fundamentally, like quarantine is a is a is a technology, is a set of powers. And those powers can be abused. Right. I, I wanted to actually bring that up in the context of surveillance and just thinking about how legal loopholes and other kind of atrocities, other abuses of power come about. In what ways does quarantine lead to these abuses of power? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, so many of the things that are tried out in quarantine tend to become permanent. So we see things throughout history where a quarantine inspection station in the desert eventually gets hardened into an actual geopolitical border between two nations or even health passports you know the idea of carrying papers that that demonstrate you're immune or that you're you've gone through quarantine gradually became what what is now the modern passport and so so much of the infrastructure of the global system we live in today is actually can be traced back to experiments during quarantine that mm. that just lasted and became kind of fossilized into uh, what we what we now think of modernity but um yeah, there's a lot of issues there. I mean, it's, it's funny. You know, I think that when it comes to things like contact tracing and, and surveillance and the kind of technology that goes into that, I mean, it's unbelievably interesting to look at it because there is, on one hand, the absolute necessity for that. We need to figure out who's been in contact with who, whether or not the disease might be spreading in a certain population, whether or not you have it so that you can avoid quarantine, whether or not someone in your family is at risk. And at the same time, you know, that is a very invasive sort of informatic power on behalf of government. And so you get into this thing where you even see it playing out literally today with people trying to resist contact tracing. There's people who are threatening to, you know, if you know someone who is signing up to become a contact tracer during the age of COVID-19, make sure you we, we compile their names and addresses so that we can dox them and basically threaten them because they're now agents of government. You know, it's almost as if everyone's becoming an FBI informant by just being a contact tracer. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you see these things getting kind of built into infrastructure. So, you know, temperature inspection stations, QR codes to get onto subways. There's a lot of infrastructure that's popping up now that I think is going to last and it's going to stick around and it's going to go much longer than coronavirus. But yet it is really interesting because on, on one side, it's very invasive and kind of scary and dystopian. But on another, it's literally what we need in order to get out of a state of quarantine. And so it's a trade-off about civil rights and medical health. Mm. What's unfortunate is because these things are often introduced in disease emergencies, people bypass the sort of scrutiny and the thinking through of what are ways in which we can protect people's data and protect their rights and uh, go straight for, we're just making this work the easiest way we know how. And then that is what gets fossilized. Even just watching the UK try out its contact tracing app on the Isle of Wight, it's amazing to see, like, they chose an island. Quarantine and islands go together hand in hand, you know, throughout history. I mean, this is one of the fascinating things about finishing this book in this time, is all of the things we were describing happening are finding, you know, echoes in the present moment. Mm. It's a really interesting thing to see. Nikki, I wanted to bring up a piece you wrote for The New Yorker a couple years ago about a pandemic simulation. This was in Washington, D.C. It was sort of a day-long simulation that the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security put on. Did you find yourself returning to this simulation as COVID-19 spread? And, and what did you learn from that exercise? Well, Johns Hopkins has done a few of these. And curiously, I was at one in October in New York City. 
that was actually a novel coronavirus out of China. Wow. So it was even more um, sort of prescient. And the head of the Chinese CDC was there. He was one of the players. Um, there was a fascinating lack of transparency from him. I mean, the whole thing was the German uh, head of the German public health, was sort of the, the uh, very decisive, very quick to sort of, it was sort of an incredible thing to see. But yeah, that simulation was really fascinating to me on a lot of levels. There were so many moments where you realized that there are political and economic concerns that will take priority over doing the best thing for the public health in many cases. So, for example, one of the things that came up during that simulation in D.C. was there was an opportunity to go to, I forget which country it was, and somewhere in South America, and sort of stop the spread. The CDC could send people, the CDC wanted to send people, but the Department of Defense said, well, we're not sending our people unless they have, you know, military accompaniment. Mm. And the government of whatever South American country this was said, no, no guns, no military. And the CDC still wanted to go, but the military wouldn't let it, you know, you can't have our people without, without the guns. And so that didn't happen. And so the disease spread. But that sort of uh, negotiation was incredible. It was, uh, the whole experience I, I was astonishing to watch. You know, the people they have playing these simulations are the deputy attorney general, you know, the former head of the CDC, acting senators, etc. And to watch them also not have a clue how to handle these dilemmas, have no idea. I mean, one of the things that we still have yet to deal with in this pandemic is going to be how do you distribute the vaccine once we have one? This is not directly quarantine related per se, but just kind of interesting. And that came up in this simulation. And the deputy attorney general said, oh, you know, this is like in an airplane, put your own mask on first. We're going to do healthcare workers. And someone else, I forget who, was like, no way. We have to do the kids, pregnant mothers. The American people will not allow the kids to die, <laughs> etc. So that debate happening you know, the most optimized thing is not necessarily the most politically palatable thing. Mm. And what people are willing to, because it's a political calculation, they have to go out and make that case. They have to think that American people are going to support their decision. And watching that calculus happen in real time was really interesting too. Yeah, it must have been amazing. And, and if you think about what the next one's going to be like, so the next simulation that you attend where I can't imagine that the head of the Chinese CDC will be there. But the next one that you attend, how do you think things are going to shift moving forward? How does this current quarantine or, or sort of shutdown affect our plans for the future? I mean, we all watch these draconian societies kind of shut down. Wuhan shut down 11 people overnight. It's like, how is this going to inform our future understanding, you think? I'll go back to one of the things I said earlier, which is that I think People are amazed at how willing people have been to make personal sacrifices for the public health good. And I think having been to these simulations where people thought there's no way, and yet watching the vast majority of Americans giving up incredible amounts of their lives, their livelihoods, the things they love for the greater good, and the willingness of people to talk about flattening the curve and understanding that logic, I think has actually been kind of inspiring. So I hope that a message that public health officials and politicians might take away is that if you do make the case 
for these public health measures and sacrifices? People can be convinced to make sacrifices beyond what you would have believed possible? Mm. Yeah, I mean, they certainly did with privacy after 9-11 for the sort of greater good. So we'll see what happens after this, I guess. Yeah. You know, storytelling has so long played an important role in our understanding of things like quarantine. And obviously, there's a long tradition of storytelling from Edgar Allan Poe to science fiction films. How do you both think about storytelling in the context of our understanding of quarantine, what it means and how we might come out of this? Well, I guess I'd say there's probably a couple answers to that. On one level, I think that another thing that will come out of this, to go back to the the previous question as well, is I think a need to actually talk about what a lockdown entails and what quarantine will, how it will be experienced and what it will be like just to get people prepped for it so that they understand that, you know, these are the kinds of things you might expect. You're going to want to subscribe to Disney Plus and, and uh, you know, get your Netflix queue set up, subscribe to Rancho Gordo Beans or something like that, you know, all the, all the things that people are doing now to, to, to get through quarantine. But I think just telling that story and getting people used to the kinds of things to expect, I think is, is quite important. But another way to look at it, though, and something that has just fascinated me throughout this is that, I mean, quarantine is at heart, not only this architectural or spatial undertaking, but it really is kind of a narrative supposition. You're saying there are six people in a building all six of them might have this disease. Who is going to start articulating it first? And right away, you're thinking it's almost like an Agatha Christie novel, or you mentioned Edgar Allan Poe, but there's this fundamental and, and strange and slightly macabre kind of horror story element to it. You know, there's something inside one of those people, and it's going to come out at some point. Where will they be? Who will it affect? And now multiply that on the scale of a city or a small village. And the thing that's so interesting, I think if you do look at quarantine from a storytelling or narrative point of view is that those kinds of things pop up all the time. You know, even when Nikki was describing that example of maybe we'll only vaccinate children or we'll do children first before we get to the adults. I mean, immediately you can imagine some sort of thing where all the kids get vaccinated and then the disease, you know, goes through another wave. And next thing you know, we've got a world, it's like a Lord of the Flies scenario where all of the kids have survived they're immune and all the adults have died off. And But that sounds like the beginning of a novel. Um, you know, there was a great example of um, a little island off the coast of Maine where the actual year-round inhabitants of this island were noticing people coming over from New England and, and trying to, you know, w- w- wait out coronavirus. And so they actually took chainsaws and sawed the trees down around the house. And then we stood outside it with shotguns and said, "You we're quarantining you. You're from the mainland and we don't know what you've brought with you. But again, that sounds like the beginning scene of, of a Stephen King novel or even a Margaret Atwood novel. But so those kinds of things pop up all the time. Like there's this constant, I don't think this is entirely what you're, you meant with your question, but I feel like <laughs> nevertheless, there's a very interesting narrative aspect to all of these things of, of quarantine, precisely because of the idea that we aren't sure. It's uncertain what's going to happen next. And you have to game out all of these scenarios. Mm. You know, what if it's the teenager who crawls out of the window at night to go visit her boyfriend or his girlfriend or whatever, and, you know, brings the disease, takes it from the, the quarantine house? Et cetera, et cetera. There are just really, really interesting examples of how storytelling and quarantine go together. Yeah. And I think there are a couple other things. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting is that we're having difficulty with now is traditionally in quarantine, you know where the end is. It's a period of time after which you are shown to be healthy and free to go or or you're diseased and then you move into isolation. The problem with our current situation, this, you know, knockoff quarantine that we're in right now, the shelter in place, lockdown, whatever, is that no one has done the narrative on how it ends. Quarantine traditionally has an ending 
it has a framework for that. And this story doesn't. And I think, you know, people are struggling with that right now because, okay, well, it's easing. What does easing mean? Does is it, is easing mean it's over? Mm. So I think that piece of this is sort of revealing a narrative gap, actually, in how we're messaging this. How do you both hope this ends? <laughs> in other words, I guess, what, do you, what what's giving you both the most hope right now and, and going into the future? I would love, to, I'll just be, you know, Pollyanna here. I would love if we came out of this with a new appreciation for some of the people whose work has actually proven itself essential, but usually struggle to even get minimum wage. So the sort of highlighting of what it takes to make society function and who is able to stay home and not, I would love that to have a lasting impact and lead to a more equal society. I would really like for political leaders to have an understanding that actually it's those leaders who have done the best job of explaining the uncertainty and the nuance. You know, you have Angela Merkel explaining pretty technical statistics to a population who are actually then, because they've been treated like adults, willing to behave like adults. So I think that's important. I would love for there to be some silver linings like that. And I would love for there to be this appreciation that like, hey, we can make big sacrifices and come out the other side as a society. That's something we need to do in general in terms of climate change. Maybe we can do this and it's not so bad, you know? To add to that, I think some of the more interesting responses to this coming out of the urbanism community have really looked at the kinds of changes that we might make in cities in order to make them safer for people in an age of pandemic respiratory illness. But at the same time, those goals also overlap with some really, really great just straight up urbanism goals as far as, you know, instead of closing down parks, why don't we just turn streets into parks so that people can have more space and they don't need to worry about social distancing and on the local trails? Why don't we widen the sidewalks? That way we don't have to, you know, panicked and, and hurried kind of rush out into the street to avoid walking past someone else who's coming up the street in the opposite direction. But why don't we redesign cities so that they are pandemic friendly, so to speak, or even quarantine appropriate? And then from there, see what we have. You know, we'll have more places to go outside. It'll be safer in general for and more sanitary for people to spend time in the public sphere. That's something that I would love to see. I'd love to see people actually take this seriously as an urban design spur and then see a city emerge from this that, that is safer and better to inhabit as humans. Mm. Nikki, Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to have you with us. Thank you. Great questions. This was a fun conversation. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.